Let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where we are this morning. I begin by sharing with you a story from my own childhood. Jesse Crowley, aged 8 or 9, 1990 or 1991, in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, during the summer. And for the longest time, I was looking forward to cutting the grass. And I had seen it done, this machine with this propeller-type blade that would snatch grass right in the middle of itself and create some sort of beautiful end. And as a little boy, I saw that red machine and I wanted to have a part of it. Can you guys relate? Yeah. I watched some baseball games on TV. And when you watch baseball games, outside of the game happening, you saw the grass cut just in those beautiful angles. And I'll go to the golf course with my grandfather and I would see this plain of grass just kind of stretch almost seemingly into eternity. There's some sort of flagpole at the end, beautifully cut. Now, the problem is twofold. One, I'm eight years old. Two, our yard is more weeds than grass. Can you attest with me? You know what I'm talking about. So I asked my stepdad, Larry, I said, Let's, I want to do this. I want to do this. I talked him into it. And he set up the lawnmower for me. We put gas in it. And he's trying to give me his safety instructional. I want nothing to do with it. I get it. I don't want to touch the blade. The blade's going to chop my hand off, okay? But at the same time, I want to get at it. And he's trying to tell me the strategy on how to cut the grass. But I don't want to listen to him. And so what I do is I just take the lawnmower in my angst and in my hurry, and I just start pushing it into the yard. Now, the funny thing is, is I had no plan, but I saw the high grass in the middle, and I just wanted to get to that grass first. So I start marching the lawnmower into the yard, and I start pushing that direction, and then I turn around, I start pushing another direction, I start turning around, I push another direction. After about five, six, seven, ten passes, the yard looks like a spider web of cuts. And he's trying to tell me, he's like, no, you need to start on the side and work your way over. And I wanted nothing to, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then this car drives by slowly and then stops. And these people have this look of bewilderment on their face as they're seeing this yard that's partially cut in the most unorthodox way possible, and then they point and they laugh. And I just remember feeling about this big. So I run back inside, and I, I go to my stepdad, Larry. I say, okay, I need your help. Please help me. Like, we need to start this process again because this isn't working. Now, what's happening, and I think I learned a few lessons in this moment. The first lesson I learned was that, man, I'm hard-headed. I didn't want to listen. I just wanted to do it my own way. I wanted, to, I wanted to kind of reject his words and his counsel. I don't care that he's been here longer than, longer than I have, right? There's a new way, old man, to do things, and I'm going to do it my way, okay? The old is out, the new has come. Well, that didn't work out, all right? And then I had to realize as well, right, in the midst of this thing, is that there is a plan that's a pretty good plan. Now, as we've been looking at the story of 1 Samuel, seeing a little bit of that as well. We're seeing a little bit of people who are hard-headed. The Bible also calls them stiff-necked, right? Like their necks don't turn. They're kind of stuck in their way. And they have this idea that they know how to manage their lives better than God knows how to manage their life. They're rejecting his counsel, and they're kind of heading their own way. Now, the difference is, from me cutting my grass to Israel in this particular moment, is that for Israel, the stakes are much higher. For me, I was pointed and laughed at by a stranger. For Israel, they're going against God himself. 
Now, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where we are. It's actually the, the, the last portion of it. And in this passage, we have pictures. We have, we have a picture of hope. We have pictures of rejection. And we have the picture of the need of people to listen. And that's where we are this morning. We're going to pick up on those ideas. We're going to learn how to hope in the Lord and not reject him and learn how to develop ears of listening. So let's turn and open and read from 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is what it says. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, Israel, out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today, you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set up a king over us. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was rather, or he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And then Samuel told the people the rights and the duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah. And with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him. And brought him no present, but he held his peace. Let's say a word of prayer. Lord, as we look to this passage, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to your word. Lord, that we would, Lord, see how you have, Lord, helped Israel. Lord, how they've rejected you. And in the midst of it all, Lord, may we be warned and may we be encouraged, Lord, not to, Lord, lean on our own understanding in these ways, but, Lord, lean on your understanding. Oh, Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we praise you in your Son Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, we have a few ideas and a few points I want to share with you. And the first idea is this, and so if you're writing this down, write, this, write these words down. And it's this. Find your hope and your joy and your protection in God alone. Find your hope and your joy and your protection in God alone. I think this is a pretty standard thing to say. I don't think many of us might think that's a striking sentence, right? Like, I'm stepping out on a limb and saying, hey guys, you know, I want you to be encouraged find your hope in God alone. And to you, you say, yes, right? Like, I want to do that. That's what I want to do. That's what the Bible encourages me to do. So, of course, this is Christianity 101. We want to find our hope and our joy and our protection only in God. As I even say that, I think of Psalm 73, verse 25 and 26. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Even the psalmist says, 
Who else is in heaven but you? Right? It's, it's like this pregnant question that's just hanging out there, and the answer is no one. There's no one else in heaven by which we look up to and we say, okay, you are the one I'm turning to for help. Only God himself, the maker and the creator of all things. This isn't like Israel, or this isn't like the times of Israel, rather, in this moment, where maybe other foreign nations thought they had other gods that they would pray to. And so we have the Canadians up north, and they have their Canadian god. We have the Mexicans down south, and they have their Mexican god, and we have our American god. No. There's only one name under heaven that we can turn to. And so we remind ourselves, find our hope and our joy and our protection in God alone. It's a pretty big duh. But there's this massive gap between things we're willing to affirm and say and lives we're willing to lead. I wonder if your life was put in chapter form. And we were able to look at the last week, or the last month, or the last year. Would it be a story, right, of you hoping and trusting and finding your joy and your protection in God? Or would it not be? If the Spirit's at work in your life, I think we would find many places of, man, by the Lord's grace, you responded in faith and in trust and humility. But what we also know that's true about us, weak, infantile, not strong, is that oftentimes we don't find our hope and our joy and our peace and our protection in God alone. In fact, we find ourselves maybe more like the Israelites, trying to find our our own solution to our perceived problem. And rather than trusting the Lord, we're trusting in our own wits and our own strength to kind of make things happen. Let's look at this passage together, verses 17 through 19. It's really a rehearsing of some of the things that were said in chapter 8. This is the, this is the second time that Samuel is going to repeat that what Israel is doing is actually a form of rejection. And so in verse 17, Samuel's calling the people together. And he has like a message he wants to share with them. And it's not this encouraging message. It's, you know, we're, we're, the context here is we're about to anoint Saul as king. And these are like the words uh, Samuel is going to share with them. But then the words he shares are kind of a tough message to take. And so he starts by talking about their history, which... People in the crowd are like, okay, why are we going to history class right now, right? We know these things. But he begins with their history, and he says, The Lord thus says, the God of Israel, that I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. Why is it important that Samuel remind the Israelites about their history in Egypt. Like, why is that relevant right here? Like, there's lots of things that could be said in this moment, but for whatever reason, Samuel finds it important that he remind them about what the Lord has done for them in Egypt. And if you don't remember, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They were oppressed in Egypt. They were on the lower rung of society, and they didn't have a constitution to protect their rights, and they were just abused. And the Lord came, and he rescued them in a miraculous way, like defeated the strongest and greatest nation of the moment and rescued the people by doing things that, were all, that, that, were, that would make you like lower your jaw and dip your head down and say, What? bringing plagues upon Egypt. And then as they escaped out of Egypt, opening the Red Sea and letting them walk through on dry ground. And that's what the story that, that Samuel is reminding them about. Now, why is that important? Well, go back with me 
to chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Because the Israelites, they know exactly why they want a king. And Samuel is speaking to the things they're saying. In verses 19 and 20, it says that the people refused to hear the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, we, there, there shall be a king over us. And then they give their reasons. Now, it's so amazing because they actually have a clear understanding of what it is they're doing and what it is they're wanting. And what are they wanting? They're wanting to be like the other nations, right? There shall be a king over us, then verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations, which is sad. The Lord has rescued them, has built them into this unique people and nation where the God, where the God of the universe is their king. And what do they want? They want to be like their neighbors. They're not content with themselves. They, they, they have that classical syndrome of FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. They want what the other people have, and what they have in this current moment is not good enough. It's like looking at your neighbor's grass and seeing it green, and you're like, why can't my grass be green like that, right? I looked at my neighbor's grass from a satellite photo, and it was green. I go, how'd the guy do that? Right? We wonder these things. We we, we strive to be like our neighbors. So they wanted that, which is not good. But then two, it says that he may judge us, that he may go out before us, and that he may fight our battles. What did they want Saul to do? The people wanted a king, and they find Saul. And what did they want this man to do? They wanted this man to fight their battles. Now, it's interesting, if we were to fast forward a little bit, and we some calamitous things happen with Saul, and we get to David. How does David come to the picture? Because no one's willing to go out and fight Goliath to fight their battles, right? So who's the one who has to go out and fight the battle? The little shepherd boy. All right, that's an aside, but I think that's an interesting note. The people of Israel wanted someone to fight their battles, and who do they find? The tall, handsome, wealthy guy from, uh, from uh, Benjamin, who's going to go out and fight their battles, and he just doesn't do it at all, right? If this was an investment, this is a really bad investment. And so we're going back to chapter 10, and then we're, we're, looking, we're looking at, okay, Samuel's telling them about what the Lord has done. Why is this important? Basically, the reason this is important, because Samuel's saying to them, you have a God who is fighting your battles, and you're asking for a king to fight your battles. He's He's kind of, he's trying to help them understand that what they're doing is rejecting God themselves. And so he continues, after he describes and reminds them about Israel in verse 19, but today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities. Now, why would the people do that? Why would the people... Why would the people have the God who took them out of Egypt and then brought them to where they are and then just reject them and ask for a king? Why would they do that? I think there's two reasons. First, the people are corrupted. I think part of the story, part of us reading the story in Samuel is for us to learn a little bit about our own condition inside. It's, you know, like left on our own, we do not make good decisions. We make bad decisions. This is an example of Israel making a bad decision. They're corrupted. They underestimate the effects of the fall on them. Theologically speaking, we would call this total depravity. The Bible teaches us that, that in our very nature, we are fully ruined or totally depraved. And depraved means sinful or bad. It means that our minds and our hearts are bent to do evil. And we see that here in just one small picture in the life of Israel, how their minds and their hearts are bent to do the very thing they should not do, reject the God of the universe. Paul, in Romans 3, he's, 
talking about, about this, talking about man, like how man is like this. And he's trying to make the point because the Jews, they had this inclination to think, oh, we're good. Like, you know, we're, we're good. We have the Bible. Like, we have all the law set up. We are clean as can be. But the Gentiles and everyone else are, like, really bad. And so, so Paul, in Romans 3, is using the Scriptures to tell them and to communicate, no, not just the Gentiles. We're actually all bad. Like, we're all deserving of death. And he has this kind of, like, uh, uh, like this mashup of quotes from the scriptures. And this is what he says in Romans 3, 11 through 18. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No one, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and in their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who's he describing? Us. He's describing us. This this isn't other people. He's describing us. Why did Israel reject God himself? Because this is what we do as people. We reject God. And this is the very reason why Christ came here, is because this is kind of how we are and who we are. We don't, we don't, we don't see a good thing and know what it is. We see the good thing and we underestimate it and walk away from it. That's what Israel's doing. Think of Jesus coming here on earth. The, the Son of God, God himself in flesh, And what do they do? He doesn't fit the picture of what they were anticipating, and so they turn their back on him. They yell curses at him as he's he's, uh, killed on the cross. And even then, what does Christ do for us? Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The Bible says that Christ died for us when we were his enemies. I think as we're looking at a picture of what's happening in the scriptures, we're seeing a picture of unfaithful men and women, faithful God. Even here, as as Samuel's pointing the finger, and he's saying, but today you have rejected your God who saves you. The emphasis is on, this is what you've done, but what has God done? God has saved you. And it's interesting that there's not this reciprocation, right? Like, if someone rejects me, I'm like, well, forget you, you know? You know, it's like, okay, well, I don't want anything to do with you either. You know, I think it's a good idea. You should go your own way. But what does God do? When we reject him, he's been faithful to us, and he's loved us. Loved us to the point of dying on a cross for our sins and giving us himself that's what God has done for us. And when we think about who God is, that's who he is. Now, for most of us, we don't accept this idea. It's a very difficult idea to accept that you're a horrible person, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's even to frame it that way, right? Like, like I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to believe that of myself. Now, I've heard this phrase multiple times, I've seen it uh, uh, said by celebrities. I think I've said it myself. I know every one of you has said it. And, and it usually happens in a scenario like this. You lash out, or you do something foolish, or you're mean, and you're bitter, and you're angry. And then a little bit of time goes by, and then you're embarrassed about what happened. And then, and then you're sitting with your friend, or you're if you're a celebrity, you're being interviewed by some person, and you say, that's not me. That's not me. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not like that at all. And the point is, no, actually, that is you. Like, like no one made you say those things. No one made you do those things. In fact, I think you just got some clarity of what you're like when you are pressed and fearful. 
So why did, why did, why did Israel reject God? Because they're corrupted inside. I remember I was listening to a podcast by a, a, a former Navy SEAL, and he's just talking about war, right? So for us men, right, we like, we like to listen to podcasts and they talk about war. And, and in the midst of him talking about different things, he just makes this offhanded comment. And he says, you would be surprised. He says, you would be surprised um, at the potential of evil everyone is able to do. Something to that, something to that extent. And his, his point was, it's like, I know that's hard for you to hear if you're some random family person in Idaho, right? But I've seen some regular good people be willing to do some really bad things. And it just kind of occurred to me that this man had been in some scenarios I've never been in, but he had an opportunity to glimpse the nature of man and what we're willing to do given the right opportunity and the right circumstances. So there is this beautiful freedom in recognizing that, you know what? We're a little bit more like Israel than we think we are. We think we might be better, right? We would never reject God in those moments. But the truth is, I think we might. So I think there's another reason why Israel rejected God. I think they were tired of the Lord's discipline. One of the realities that is true of, that's true from the Bible, and that's true of how the Lord works in us, is the Lord, the, the Lord disciplines those he loves. And many of us in this room are parents. Some of us are not. But when you have a child, you know, there's moments that you discipline your child. And in those moments of discipline, you're not trying to be small. You're not trying to be wrathful. You're trying to train them and teach them. And you know that the most loving thing you can do, right, is discipline them in that moment because there's something they don't know and they need to learn it. And so the Lord acts in a similar way, right? He even uses it as a picture. What is the Lord doing with Israel in this moment? The Lord is disciplining Israel. And so what's happening right before we get, we get here? We had that moment where they were fighting against the Philistines, and they went to battle against them twice, and both times they were just defeated. And the message is, man, don't be evil like Hophni and Phinehas. Don't be evil like the way Samuel's children had kind of grown up and became evil the way they did. Like, repent as a nation. Believe and trust the Lord. But it's as if the people, it was, it was easier to reject the Lord rather than to submit to him. And so they said, you know what? I guess we can't do it. And so they came up with a plan. So, one of the things happening in the life of Israel in this moment is that they are rejecting the Lord's discipline because they're tired of it. And so they thought, you know what? We'll get a king, and we'll just be like the Philistines because, to be honest, life in Philistia seems pretty good. A second idea. The Lord's perfect plan is infinitely better than your own devising. The Lord's perfect plan is infinitely better than your own devising. Compare those two ideas. The Lord's perfect plan, your own devising. There's something sinister about that word devising. It doesn't have like a positive connotation. You could use it in a positive way, but at least in this moment, it doesn't have a positive connotation. It's like we are, we are working to invent and to create and to plan. But the problem is, is that in all of our working, we're not doing it in submission to the Lord. We're doing it kind of outside of the Lord. And I'm reminded of Psalm 2. 
Psalm 2 asks the question and poses the question, why do the nations rage and why do the people plot in vain? It's almost as, as if one of the ways to describe what is man like outside of God, outside of submission to God, Man is plotting and devising and creating and planning, and we're doing it all for nothingness. Our plans turn to nothing. I'm reminded of that song that we sing on occasions. It has a line rooted in Psalm 127. It says, Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. So the Lord's plan is, is infinitely better than our own planning and devising. Now, Saul, Saul is Israel's plan. Now, Saul is an interesting person because Saul is a contradiction in himself. Saul is described as wealthy, and so what can we assume of him if he's wealthy? He had the best education, the most the best opportunities that were given to him. Paul is described as, not Paul, Saul is described as handsome, which means he's a little more Pastor Alex and a little less Pastor Jesse. (laughs) And he's also described as tall, right? Like tall. So when you see Saul walking through a crowd, who do you see? You see someone who has nice clothes on. You see someone who has the capacity to, you know, look well and present himself well. You see someone who is head and shoulders above every other person, and you see someone who looks well. Everything on the outside, if we wrote Saul on paper, we would think, man, like, like this seems like a good guy, right? Everything about him kind of seems pretty well. And it's amazing how vain we are that we look for the handsome and the tall and the wealthy to lead us. And later on, we learn that the Lord does not look on the external, but he looks on the inside. But we make that mistake. And so we have this character who's tall and handsome and wealthy. You know, it's interesting. I think they've done research on this. The CEOs of the top companies are all over 6'1 or 6'2". Like, we're, we're looking for tall, strong people to lead us. I remember I, I met a man, he was a pastor, and he had an amazing voice. You guys ever meet people with an amazing voice? And they just talk, and if they're in this room, they don't need amplification. Some person down the street says, hey, I heard someone talking. You know, they start walking in. And I go up to him, and I ask him, because he had this, this massive voice, I said, you must have been in a quartet or something, right? Like, you were the bass guy. And he's like, no, I can't sing. He's like, but my dad did tell me, be careful what you say, because people just might believe you. We rely and we trust and we put our faith on external things. But the scriptures in the Bible are kind of creating another picture of Saul. And Pastor Jose in the past few weeks, has, has highlighted some of these aspects of him. One, Saul is present, presented as someone who's spiritually uninterested. Now, we don't get a big glimpse of that, but we get a glimpse of that when, when he has lost his donkeys, his father's donkeys, and they're all looking for them, and his servant says, we need to go talk to this prophet named Samuel. And then Saul seemingly has, seemingly has no idea who this person is. Now, you go back and read through uh, chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and figure out who Saul is. Saul is described, oh, Saul and Samuel. Wow, we're getting these words messed up. When you try to figure out who Samuel is, Samuel is someone whose word has gone out to all of Israel. Samuel is the judge and the prophet of Israel. And it is outlandish to think that some individual, some wealthy, trained, educated, smart person from an influential family in this Benjaminite tribe has no idea who Samuel is. When they had Bible class 
In school, he went out to the lake and went fishing, is what he did. He missed it, spiritually uninterested. He's also presented as someone who lacks leadership capacity. Where do we see that? Well, Pastor Jose pointed out the idea that when, when they were searching for these donkeys, whose idea was it to go seek after Samuel? It was a servant's idea. He's being presented as someone who's following rather than someone who's leading. And then also in this passage, let's go back and we'll look at verses 20 and 21 and 22 and so on. So Samuel is bringing all the tribes together. You've got the tribe of Benjamin, You've got the clans coming near. It's this massive event in the life of Israel like building up to this climax that we're going to present you the new king. And so you gather everyone around, and then they go and look for Samuel, rather Saul. Sorry. They look for Saul, and where is Saul? He's hiding in the baggage. He's a stowaway in his own nation. And then they even ask the question, Lord, are you going to like send someone else? Or what's like, they're, they, they're confused as well. And says, no. And the Lord says, no, he's hiding himself in the baggage. And then what happens next? They ran and took him from there. Saul doesn't even have the capacity to take himself from there. It's the men orchestrating and organizing and pushing and moving him forward. So we have a picture on one side of someone who just looks like the right type of man for the job. And then we have another picture, and it looks like he is not the right type of man for a job. I'd say that's what happens when we try to devise our own plans. We try to forge our own way. We end up coming up with solutions that are poor solutions. And in fact, I think the nation of Israel, and we saw this in Samuel, actually had a pattern of this. This was the play they ran earlier as well. They create their own plans. And I think I noticed a pattern, and we'll look at it together, but it was a pattern of this. They reject God. They have some problem to solve. They present a solution. They celebrate their good idea, and then calamity strikes. Okay, so think of that pattern. Rejection, problem, solution, celebration, calamity. Go back and let's look at verse, I mean, chapter 6 or chapter 5 or chapter 4. We're just, keep on going back, all right? You know, let's just go to Judges, okay? <laughs> all right. In chapter 4, Israel goes out to battle with the Philistines. Philistines. And prior to this, we have, we have poor leadership. We talked about this. Hophni and Phinehas. They've rejected God. They're leading the nation under the authority of their dad and judge, Eli. And so we have rejection, Hophni and Phinehas. A problem to solve. What's the problem to solve? The Philistines. The Philistines are knocking at our door and they're going to attack us, and we need to have a plan. We went out and fought them. We came back defeated. We need to have a plan. What's the plan in chapter 4? The ark of God. If we bring the ark of God into the camp, what's going to happen? We're going to be good. Right? We're going to be good. We're going to be safe. What happens when they bring the ark of God into the camp? They shouted, right? Like, yeah! As we were reading through that passage, when we were studying the scriptures ourselves, that was such a dark moment for me as I'm, as I'm hearing Pastor Jose explain and exposit that moment. Because it's, it, it reminds me of, man, they are smiling. They are happy. They think they have settled the plan. And really what's about to happen is calamity and danger. And they have no idea I think about that in our own lives. How many times are we celebrating? Are we in times of party and excitement and celebration when right around the corner is a moment of calamity 
in danger. It's as if we are unaware, we are blind, and we are stuck. So, after the celebration, calamity happens. They get into the fight with the Philistines, and it says that 30,000 Israelites died. Fast forward to chapter 10, back where we are. Rejection of God. Samuel's sons, unfortunately, follow the pattern of Eli's sons. They are not righteous. The nation is not following after God. They've rejected the counsel of Samuel, so they have a problem to solve. What's their problem? It's the same problem they had before. The Philistines are knocking at their door, and they're ready to fight them. What solution do they need? Or what solution do they present, rather? We need a king. We get the king, we're going to be good. Do we see celebration? In verse 24, And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king. It's another moment of excitement, another moment of joy, right before they're about to have an ungodly leader leading them. I think we think about that in our own lives, our own devising, our own plan making. As people maybe outside of Christ, having never trusted in Jesus before, I think all we are ever able to do is devise and create our own plans. And part of becoming a Christian is actually admitting that fact. Right? Like, I understand that outside of the Lord's grace and providence and care, I am headed in a train wreck, a head-on collision. So, so that's where we are, right? We, we are, we are, that's our pattern. Those are the things we do. But I think even as Christians, as the Lord is working in us, sanctification, making us more holy, day by day by day, we have the temptation and the intuition and the reflex to reject the Lord and to lean on our own understanding and our own plans and what we're reading in this passage here is those plans will fall. And the best thing the Lord can do for you is to allow you to experience a little bit of calamity so that you would know your plans are bad and so that you would turn back to Him. At times, I get to have conversations with people in the church and it happens a lot and regularly, and some difficulties happening, and we're just pounding our heads on the wall together, right? Like, man, I'm sorry. This is a tough situation. And my, my first inclination always is to share with them, man, the Lord is sovereign. He's fully in control. This isn't some made-up or some, some, some thing happening outside of His sovereign plan and will. And so what you need to do is you need to learn to trust him. And Charles Spurgeon said it this way, I, I praise the wave that crashes me on the rock of ages. So if there's some circumstance or some difficulty that pulls the rug out from underneath you, and you can no longer feel strong and wise and smart, and you feel a little humble and embarrassed, man, those are good places to be. Because in those places, we find really good answers. One, it's not about me. Two, it's all about the Lord. Even Paul, Paul was a great guy. Paul loved to call himself Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant of Jesus Christ. If, if I could just be, you know, a helper in the Lord's kingdom, I'm good. Like, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking to be at his right hand or to be some ruler in his kingdom like the disciples were kind of pleading and asking for. I just want to be a humble servant of the Lord. And you know what? If we can kind of get there, learn to kind of cast off pride, be humble, trust the Lord, it's a good place to be. 
So allow the Lord to use your calamitous situations to help you grow to trust him rather than to continually reject him. Part of the reason we have this story here in 1 Samuel is that we would hear that lesson. We would see their difficulties, and we would learn them for ourselves and trust the Lord. But finally, here, a third idea. Put your hope in God's mysteriously beautiful plan, and thereby save yourself from sorrow. Put your hope in God's mysteriously beautiful plan, and thereby save yourself from sorrow. After that moment of long live the king, it's time to wrap up this coronation service. And so Samuel tells the people the rights and the duties of kingship. He writes them in a book, and he lays it before the Lord, and then he sends all the people away to their home, like things are done. We've said the final prayer. Now everyone goes back off to their home. And we see two things at work. One, Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. And in the midst of Israel's rejection, the Lord was acting to bless and honor and do good for the nation of Israel. What did he do for Saul? He gave him men of valor whose hearts have been touched by God. Right? Like, like here are some good friends that you need to have around you. But in verse 27, but some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, and he held his peace. Worthless fellows. If we sow unbelief, if we sow rejection of God, I think our future is sadness and sorrow. What, what did the future look like for Saul? On day one of his kingship, he already had enemies, worthless men who did not want to honor him as king, and were left at the end of chapter 10 with this reality that things are not well for Israel, things are not going to continue good for them, and this king that we have, that they're all excited about in this moment, may not be the king they really need. But there's something else at work here as well. Because we have, on one vein, the rejection of God by Israel, but in the other vein, we have this gloriously good God working a plan. And so even in the midst of, 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 of the nation rejecting God and trying to anoint for themselves a king, the Lord is at work. He told Samuel, allow them. Right? Even, even part of the process of, of, of presenting this king to the, the, the nation, he's giving this king like valiant men to be around. Even though we all know, either because we're reading the story and we're seeing that, that whatever ingredients we have are not the right ingredients, or two, because we just know the story and we're going to get to David eventually, that this kingdom is going to be calamitous and it's going to fall. It's not going to be good. But the Lord is working a mysteriously good plan. Because we, we need Saul to get to David. And we need David to get to Solomon. And then we need Solomon to get to all the rest of the kings and the prophets to finally one day, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. And somehow, in the Lord's beautifully meticulous plan, he strung out this line through history that takes us from sinfulness, that takes us from rejection, to finally the hope that we have in this boy king, Jesus Christ. And even now, we celebrate him. 
We celebrate his birth because his birth does something special for us. It causes us not to lean into these old intuitions of rejection, but rather lean into this new intuition of, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give my life to you. And so what we need to do, right, as people, as members of this church, as people in this small corner of Miami, is we need to be anti First Samuel chapter 10 Israelites. And we need to do the opposite. And rather than rejecting God, we need to put our faith and trust him in the very big ways of giving him your life and surrendering rejecting your pride and submitting yourself to him and being poor in spirit and saying, Lord, I have nothing. All I have is yours. Forgive me for my sin. I repent of it. I push it away and I trust you. Do it in very big ways like that and also in very small ways. Like waking up and deciding, Lord, help me not be mean-spirited today. Lord, help me not fall into the trap of thinking I'm great and I'm better than the people I work with. Or Lord, help me like root out this inclination toward self-sufficiency and pride. Help me be a good husband and be a good wife. Help me not to be a mean dad or a spiteful mother. And so day by day by day, we repent of our sins, and we believe in the Lord, and we trust him. Not like the Israelites did here, but like, what like the Lord has called us to do now. And the examples we see in the New Testament. So, we walk through a story. We saw how the Lord had used Samuel to remind his people that we need to trust the Lord as our protector. We saw that we need not to be a devising people and devise our own plans and to create our own struggles. And we see as well how the Lord is working his mysteriously good plan. Like Joseph. When Joseph was rejected by his brothers, when he was left to die in a hole, when he was sold into slavery, when he was falsely accused of sexual assault, when he was thrown in prison, just had a horrendous life, and then the Lord exalted him and allowed him to be influential in the kingdom of Egypt. And then one day again, he looks his brothers in the eye, and they look back at him, and he says, what you meant for evil, the Lord meant for good. That's how the Lord works. Or Romans 8.28, right? This idea that, that for those who love God, that the Lord works all things for good. So even in difficulty, even in calamitousness, you trust him, you believe in him, and you put your faith in him. That's what the Lord has called us to do.